Good morning. Uh, for those of you who were not here yesterday, uh, I welcome you to Princeton and to the Food, Ethics and Environment Conference. I'm Peter Singer from the Center for Human Values and, of course, also on behalf of Princeton Environmental Institute. We have a uh, very full day uh, today, um, but it's a very exciting day with a lot of speakers lined up. Um, I'd uh, remind you to turn off your cell phones, of course. Also, I want to let you know that uh, we have a number of authors here who have published books in this area. Uh, we have some books on sale in the foyer around to that side, and authors will be available to sign books during the breaks. Um, the breaks are not very long. We have a morning and an afternoon tea break. Uh, so we'll, we'll get a few books signed there. If you can't find the author you want there, you can look for the author during the day or at the lunch break, and generally they'll be happy to sign the books when you can, when they can. To um, moderate this morning's session, I'm going to call on Rita Hinden. Uh, Rita is a uh, researcher in public health and epidemiology from the University of Massachusetts. She's also a Princeton alum, but the real reason why I'm, I'm asking her to moderate this session now is that, uh, in a way, she is the inspiration behind the conference that we have put on, in that uh, a couple of years ago, Rita came to me and said that as a Princeton alum uh, and as someone working in public health, she was interested in exploring what could be done to make Princeton's food supply um, better, healthier, more in, uh, environmentally sustainable, and, and generally more ethical. And as it happened, I was at that stage uh, beginning the work on uh, the book I wrote with Jim Mason, The Way We Eat, and uh, I was very happy to support this uh, idea and also to try and make it um, both a practical and an educational opportunity, because I think food is a really special case in that uh, there is a lot to be learned about it in a variety of different ways, a variety of different disciplines, and we have those disciplines come together here, um, biologists working on environmental issues, people who can work in uh, economics, industry, agriculture, business, but also, of course, uh, extensive, there's extensive literature about food and, and agriculture. Um, there are also a lot of ethical questions uh, for philosophers to concern with, questions of, of political theory about the organization of it, and uh, I think Eric Schlosser brought out the way in which uh, the extent to which we organize our food supply is, is part of the way we are structured and organized as a nation as a whole. So it's a, a food offers a great educational opportunity uh, for Princeton students, but also something that is therefore uh, immediately practical. And I think that was the kind of idea that uh, Rita Hinden was, was urging and was the opportunity that we took up. And um, it's uh, having more than one spin-off, uh, I don't want to suggest that it just builds up to this conference and that's it because the whole idea of it is that it's an ongoing practical thing which uh, I hope will not only provide the stimulation that this conference does but will also lead us all to think about how we can make our own food supply and the food supplies of institutions that we're connected with and I know many of you are from Princeton but many of you have come from other institutions as well, how we can work towards those goals. So I want to thank uh, Rita for that inspiration and ask her to moderate this session. Please welcome Rita Hinden.
Thank you. If, as I believe, our food choices provide a significant reflection of our humanity, then the two presenters of today's opening session are exceptionally well-suited to remind us of our individual and collective potential. Our first speaker, Marion Nessel, is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. She's a leader and advocate for better nutrition in academia, in government, and in the public media, to which she was department chair at NYU and has published many dozens of articles in peer-reviewed professional journals. She has served as an advisor at both the FDA and the USDA. For example, she was the managing editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. She is the author of several widely acclaimed books addressed to all of us who eat. These are Food Politics, Safe Food, Bacteria Biology, Biotechnology and Bioterrorism, and most recently, What to Eat. Each is essentially an invitation to us to be informed, and we're fortunate to have her here today to inform us directly and to inspire us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here at this wonderful conference in this gorgeous space. Um, my presentation I, is entitled uh, The Environmental Determinants of Food Choice, um, and it's going to pick up on a theme that Eric Schlosser uh, dealt with last night. And my starting place for it uh, is a paper written by my old friend Kate Clancy in 1982, in which she asked some fairly serious questions about the food supply, and this was the first time I had ever heard those questions asked. Uh, is it ethical, she asked, to make junk foods and profit from them? Um, is it ethical to urge people to consume such foods? Is it ethical to market such foods to people who are in no position to evaluate them, such as children? Well, 25 years have gone by, and here's the New Yorker asking the question, which entree raises the fewest ethical issues? Ethical issues in food choice have become mainstream. And so there are further questions that I think we need to ask. Is it ethical for food companies to promote highly processed foods as healthful? Uh, is it ethical for food companies to sponsor self-serving research, to lobby government agencies in their own self-interest, to lobby health professionals? in their own um, corporate interest and to attack critics of, of their policies, a uh, subject to which I am exceedingly sensitive. Um, <laughs> The, um, the, the, uh, just the asking of these questions, it seems to me, reframes the discussion about food and health in a very different way, and I'm very grateful to Peter Singer for uh, reframing the dialogue. Uh, I think these questions are important because the issue that drives my work is public confusion about nutrition and health. Uh, this was a Newsweek article from last spring that talked about how confused the public is about what to eat. Uh, based 
based on, largely on the exceedingly contradictory research that comes out all of the time. And I think that's too bad because as Time Magazine put it, you don't need to be an Einstein to figure out what to have for dinner. And to me, nothing could be simpler. Um, I think it's uh, just simply a matter of eating less, moving more, making sure you get plenty of fruits and vegetables and not eating too much junk food and enjoying your food. And that really takes care of most of the problems about diet and health. And if they seem more complicated than that, uh, it's surely because of, uh, of the single public health nutrition uh, issue that drives everything in the field these days, which are the very rapidly rising rates of obesity. I just got the latest um, report from the Journal of the American Medical Association this morning, and rates of obesity among adults of the United States have increased by 6% just since 1999. And it's not just a cosmetic problem, it's also a problem because of rising rates of the health consequences of obesity. So this drives the field. And there are two ways of dealing with uh, the whole obesity question. Um, the first is to say, okay, if you're fat, it's your fault. And this is what um, the economist said a few years ago. Uh, somebody in there said, if people want to eat their way to grossest, it's their fault and their problem, and we shouldn't eat to bother about it. And of course, if you think that personal responsibility is what drives um, eating behavior, then the remedy is simply to educate people. You just tell people the right thing to do um, and hope that they will do it. And I have public health nutrition students from my class here today, and they know that education is not enough. It doesn't work. The alternative approach is to change the environment. And the New York Times described the environment as the gorge-yourself environment a few years ago. More, choice, more food, more choices, and more eating. And here the remedy is, if you want to improve the way people eat, you change the environment to make it easier for people to make more healthful choices. So the default is a healthy choice rather than the default being what it is now. So I want to talk a little bit about the factors in the environment that research, and more and more research, demonstrates, encourages people to eat more calories, even when they don't want to, even when they're on diet and even when they know better. The first is variety. It's referred to in the trade as the buffet syndrome. If you go to a buffet and you taste everything that's in there, you're going to consume more calories than you would if the food were less varied. The second, and in many ways the most important, is large portions. This is my former doctoral student, now Dr. Lisa Young, with um, an indication of her research on uh, cup sizes for soft drinks. The one on the left is an eight-ounce standard department of agriculture uh, serving size for a soft drink. It's eight ounces. You can't even get one anymore. Um, and the others were bought at our local movie theater. The largest uh, contains 64 ounces of drink if it doesn't have too much ice in it and provides 800 calories worth of soda and consumed by one person. And the work of Brian Wansink, who's just published a, a wonderful new book called Mindless Eating, um, shows that even if you give people food, if you just give people a larger container, they'll consume more calories than they would if the container were smaller. He's very interested in studying environmental cues that trigger overeating, and he can show that people who are given a four-quart bowl of popcorn will eat almost twice as many calories out of that bowl um, as they would if it were in a two-quart bowl, and their estimation of the number of calories that they're eating lags significantly behind the actual number. 
another one is ubiquity. There's food everywhere. And I like to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? Um, you know, I can still remember the days when they you know, made you leave your drinks outside. Um, the closer food is to you, the more you will eat of it, the more fr frequently uh, you eat, the more calories you will consume. And all of these are det uh, determinants of um, eating behavior, as is low prices. We heard a lot about low prices last night. But the example that I like to give is a very simple one. If you go into McDonald's with $5, you have a choice. You can buy five hamburgers or you can buy one salad. There's something wrong with that picture. Um, and it, this is not just because of McDonald's clever pricing strategies. This also has to do a lot with federal policies that support the production of some foods rather than others. Uh, if it's policy, policies can be changed. So these are the kinds of things that I talked about in my previous books, Food Politics and Safe Food, which came out in 2002 and 2003. And as I was going around the country talking about those books, people would come up afterwards and say, oh, very interesting work, but you didn't tell us what to eat. And I was very surprised by that until I really got into it and started asking them what they meant. And they started telling me how for them supermarkets were ground zero for anxieties about food. Supermarkets, they said, made them anxious. For example, when they went into a supermarket, they saw danger everywhere. When they went into a supermarket, they were overwhelmed by the number of choices. They just didn't know how to make those choices. What they really wished for was that people would just tell them which foods are good for them and which foods are bad for them and make it simple to make those kinds of choices. So I started going around supermarkets um, and doing kind of a critical analysis of supermarkets. I learned a lot about them very quickly. Uh, this is a map of a store in Ithaca, New York. It's a typical um, mid-sized supermarket. It could be anywhere in the country or for that matter anywhere in the world because all supermarkets are based on the same research. Um, you come in where the arrow is at the door, um, you go around the store and those big aisles are in the middle. Um, and all stores start with produce sections. Um, the produce sections entice you in and are what Michael Pollan calls supermarket pastoral. And I love this photograph, Michael, because it's got a picture of my poster for my book on your desk. Um, <laughs> So I always like to show this one. Thank you for that. Um, the periphery of supermarkets is set up not only for the convenience of the store because it's easier to manage the refrigeration and the stocking of the fresh foods from the periphery, but milk is always in the far distant corner because the object of the game is to get you to do as much walking in the store as possible because rule number one of supermarkets is that the more products you see, the more you're likely to buy. And let me tell you, this is backed up by very substantial research. Not only the more products, if it's true that the more products you see, the more you buy, then you want to make sure, if you're a food manufacturer, that your product gets seen. And so, super, so companies pay supermarkets to put their products in prime real estate at eye level 
um, and at other areas in uh, where people are likely to see them. But where the profits are really made in stores is in the center aisles. Um, and that, of course, is where the junk food is. Um, and by junk food, which is a rude term for uh, highly processed foods that are high in calories, that are rather nutritionally depleted and that are highly profitable to the store, those are going to be in the center aisles. Um, and one of the things you want to do in the center aisles is put plenty of sugar in the products, sugars, plural, in the products, because if you, you can easily add value to sugars, which are very cheap, and sell them for a lot more money. And so you see big aisles devoted to candy in supermarkets, and that candy will be at prime real estate, at the ends of the aisles, and at the cash register. None of that is accidental. Um, but the, really, the place where you really want to see food sold is in soft drinks. And I was taken last May by a reporter for the Los Angeles Times to a supermarket in downtown Los Angeles um, in an extremely low-income area in downtown LA. And I was stunned by the displays of, super, of uh, soft drinks in that store. There were soft drinks in a whole huge aisle and at the end of one aisle. There was a wall of soft drinks. When you came into the store. There was a, an, a soft drink display at the terrific real estate end of an aisle. There was soft drinks at the end of another aisle. There were soft drinks available at the end of another aisle. There were soft drinks available in a freestanding display. Uh, there were soft drinks at the end of another aisle. And my favorite was that there was this platform of soft drinks on which they were displaying garden furniture. You, you. <laughs> You could not walk out of that store without buying a bottled drink of some kind or another. Um, and the pricing strategies also encourage overeating um, because it costs much less per uh, ounce to buy soft drinks from a large container, three cents or less per ounce, uh, than it does from a small container, more than 10 cents per ounce. And I once asked supermarket a conference of supermarket executives how come the difference was so big. And they said, well, if you want small containers, you should be willing to pay for them. Uh, but these pricings... But these pricing strategies encourage people to eat more. And then I haven't even gotten to the issue that, of course, encourages people to eat more and more than anything, which is advertising. And uh, American food and beverage companies spend about uh, $12 billion a year in total on food and beverage advertising. That's just for direct media, radio, television, print, um, because it's measurable by, the, by advertising age and other industry groups. But then they estimate that in addition to that, there's another $2 spent for every dollar spent on direct media on things like trade shows, coupon campaigns, um, and point of purchase kinds of things. And so the total is somewhere in the order of $36 billion, uh, a number that's far too big for me to comprehend. So I've picked one example of a single product. Um, this is uh, Kellogg's Cheez-Its had a $32 million advertising budget last year just for direct media, just for one product. I can assure you that this greatly exceeds the total federal expenditure on any kind of healthy eating campaign. Now, rule number four is to use health claims to sell products, and I want to make it very clear that I am not against companies selling products. Where I start balking is when they start advertising these products as particularly helpful. Well, here's a, a product that, you know, isn't a bad, it's a cracker, for heaven's sakes. This product has ten health claims on it. 
Um, it says it's heart healthy, it's reduced in fat, it's got whole grain and no trans fats. Oh, that's good. Um, it may reduce the risk of heart disease. Um, it doesn't, it's low in saturated fat and cholesterol. It, follow, it meets the criteria of the Department of Agriculture's pyramid. It's heart healthy, and it's a weight management tool. Um, okay. The only thing missing on that was the American Heart Association's um, endorsement. And the reason why there's no American Heart Association endorsement on this is that Triscuit is owned by Nabisco. Nabisco is owned by Kraft. Kraft is owned by Altria. And Altria owns Philip Morris. And the American Heart Association won't put its logo on products owned by cigarette companies. But it will put its logo on products that, have, that are sugary cereals because it doesn't care about sugar. It only cares about fat in products. Um, and so here's the American Heart Association logo on a frosted uh, cereal in which four of the ingredients, of half the ingredients roughly, of, are added sugars of one kind or another. Uh, the other thing that this particular product does is in the upper right-hand corner, it has self-endorsements about its healthful qualities. And I want to say just a few things about these self-endorsements because all companies are doing this these days. Here's PepsiCo's Smart Choices Made Easy uh, in an advertisement in the Journal of the American Dietetic Association so that dietitians will uh, promote use of these products among their clients. Um, Kraft does the same thing. It has a sensible solution um, logo because this is an excellent source of calcium because it has ch cheese in it, I guess, even though it has 25% of the daily value for saturated fat and sodium and has a full ounce of uh, sugars in it, uh, not exactly what you might think of as a health food. Um, when um, a company does independent criteria for evaluating products, as Hannaford Supermarkets did this year, uh, they hired an independent group of nutritionists and scientists to develop a fairly stringent criteria for the healthfulness of products. They discovered to their dismay that three-quarters of the products in their stores didn't qualify for even one star. They have a one, two, three star program, de depending on how healthful the foods are, um, and three-quarters of 27,000 products in their stores did not qualify even for one star. Um, and almost none of the Sensible Solution and Smart Spot products qualified. Um, rule number five is to target what the industry refers to as LOHAS. I'm guessing that's you. Uh, these are people who follow the lifestyle, certainly me. They're, they're people who follow lifestyles of health and sustainability and are likely to look for products that appear healthful in stores. And this is a picture of Safeway's new line of organic foods. Um, that just came out last spring, and they have organic carrots and organic milk priced very nicely. And then they all also have organic macaroni and cheese, organic frozen burritos, organic fruit-flavored cereal with no fruit in it, and all of the other kinds of things um, that um, you expect to see in supermarkets, you know, my feeling about this is an organic junk food is still a junk food. And that's why you have things like organic tortilla chips and my favorite candy, which is classic organic gummy bears, um, <laughs> vegan. Um, and so, you know, you can buy healthy candy for your kids. Um, and this brings me to the whole question of marketing to children um, where, and I should say that all of this is legal. 
Um, whether it's ethical is something we can argue about, and certainly when it comes to marketing to children, we cross, I think, a very serious ethical line. And it's not just me who says so. In December, the Institute of Medicine, a think tank in Washington, came out with an extraordinary report on marketing foods to children, in which they reviewed 123 studies, um, did a really serious research job, and in which they described the research enterprise that is devoted to marketing to children, the methods that are used to sell things directly to children, the amount of money that's spent on marketing to children, the sales that result as a result, uh, the effects that marketing to children have on children's requests for products, and the effects on their health. Um, you cannot read this report without coming away from this thinking that business cannot go on as usual. This situation has to change. Um, there are three reasons why companies want to market to, to children. The first is brand loyalty. Uh, get them hooked early and they'll want those foods for life. The second is referred to in the trade as the pester factor. You want kids to ask their parents uh, or their caretakers to buy these foods for them. And any of you who have young children experience this on a daily basis. But I think the third is the most insidious and it's the one that troubles me the most. And that is you want to convince kids that they're supposed to be eating kids' food, um, kids' cuisine. They're not supposed to be eating the boring adult foods that their parents eat. They're supposed to have their foods like this in special cartoon illustrated packages in funny colors and shapes. So you have these unidentified food objects in there. Um, and this is very effective. Kids are barraged with foods that are made just for them. You take a two-year-old into a supermarket and that two-year-old goes right to the products that are made just for kids, kids' foods. Um, and these are interesting foods. Um, here's a box that um, is candy that is designed to look like food. And then you have a cereal that's designed to look like candy. So it's very, very confusing for kids to try to figure out um, I mean, they just think they're supposed to be eating candy all the time. Now, this starts very early. Uh, Gerber's now makes a processed um, finger food for kids that's for, um, you know, made for children who are just being weaned. These are their first foods. Um, and the companies themselves are getting into uh, an amazing collection of activities to make their products look healthier that are designed for kids. This is a craft sensible solution, macaroni and cheese, um, just covered with illustrations about how many vitamins um, and minerals it has in it and how it's made with whole grain. You don't want to read the label on this thing too carefully. Um, here's uh, my favorite example uh, brought to me by a student who's here. Thank you, Lauren. Um, the, oh, who, and she bought this, these two boxes on the same day in Manhattan. The box on the left, um, a Fruity Pebbles with 12 grams of sugar and zero grams of fiber is the standard uh, product in the line, but they've made a sensible solution version of it that has half a teaspoon per serving less of sugars and that adds three grams of polyester dextrose, uh, an artificial fiber, so that they can advertise this as a good source of fiber. Um, PepsiCo has a product that is made just a, a snack food that's made just for kids. It's got zero grams of trans fat. 
um, and it has this, the smart spot on it. And I've illustrated the ingredient list because anytime you see an ingredient list this long, you know it's a dead giveaway that this is not something that you would want to feed your kid. Um, here's um, a new innovation. Uh, Kellogg's has come out with a new breakfast pack for kids who are on the school breakfast program. Um, and this is made so that the schools don't have to do any work for it. Um, and this breakfast contains frosted flakes, Pop-Tarts, and apple juice. Um, and the reason for doing it is given in this advertisement. This is in a trade publication. It reduces your labor costs while supporting more participation and more profits. Uh, guess what this is about? Uh, here's, I think, I think this is my last example. Um, this is a General Mills cereal. It's with the self-endorsement, 75% less sugar, um, and it's sweetened with Splenda and artificial sweetener. Whether this is a good idea uh, for feeding kids is something we can debate lab later, I would say say no. Why does everything have to be sweet? I don't know. And then um, in part of the effort to make foods look healthy, uh, Nickelodeon has licensed its SpongeBob character for carrots. Uh, many people think this is a terrific thing to do because it will encourage children to eat more vegetables. I think it's part of the whole environment of trying to teach kids that they're supposed to be eating kids' food, not real food. And I don't think it's a very good idea. Um, now, while all of that is going on, here's what's going on behind the scenes. It's very difficult to get information about expenditures on advertisements if you're not part of the industry. But Advertising Age had this graph last, at the beginning of the year where it demonstrated the minuscule amount of money that PepsiCo is putting into advertising its healthier snack versions and the 20 to $25 million per product for direct media advertising that it's doing for its usual snacks. So business as usual is being supported with heavy dollars, uh, whereas these uh, so-called healthier products are not. And then, of course, behind the scenes, these companies banded together to form an alliance to protect their First Amendment rights to market to children. Um, so we're dealing here with a, a situation in which marketing to children, um, which I think is an ethical problem is being defended using the First Amendment to the Constitution. It's hard for me to believe that that was the intent of the Founding Fathers, but so be it. Now, I haven't said anything so far about uh, the economic issues involved in this, I know that they're going to come up over and over. Um, and the fact that these uh, healthier foods are only affordable by uh, people who can afford them. And that, in fact, we have a two-class food system in our society as we have a two-class system in many other ways. Um, and that's something that you need to keep in mind while we're discussing the ethical issues. And I say that because I think food is a new social movement. Um, as I go around talking to people, I'm astounded by the way food has become a trigger point and a flashpoint for people's concerns about the kind of society that they want to live in. And this, uh, and this social movement, I think, is taking many forms in many different ways. It's still quite disorganized. Um, but I think everybody is moving in the same direction. Uh, we have, for example, one senator uh, who is very interested in doing something about food marketing to children and introduced a bill last year and again this year in which he makes the parallel between the way food is marketed to children and the way cigarettes are marketed to children. The organic movement, with all of its flaws, uh, is still, I think, an important step 
in uh, trying to reach a better food future. And I like this because it's illustrated in movement terms. What do we want? 100% organic feed. When do we want it now? It sounds like rallies I used to go to. Um, the um, the uh, organics are succeeding in many ways. They're the fastest growing segment of the food industry. In fact, they're the only growing segment of the food industry. And as I say, for all of their complications, which you'll hear, hear about more, um, I think it's still uh, overall a positive trend. Um, the kinds of things that Peter Singer has been talking about for years, the way in which animals are raised, I think has moved way beyond um, animal rights and has moved into the mainstream in ways that are quite, uh, I think, dramatic. The Union of Concerned Scientists published a report last year uh, written by Kate Clancy, the woman um, whose work I started this talk with, on how uh, grass-fed beef and milk are healthier for people. Uh, Center for Science and the Public Interest, which has not historically been involved in anything having to do with animal raising, um, has a new report out on greener diets in which much of the report is devoted to the way in which industrial animals are raised. So I think this is another area in which there's a trend towards movement. The whole farm to community movement, which is just extraordinary, uh, the focus on locally grown, which we'll hear about next, sustainable community supported agriculture, and the enormous growth of farmers markets in cities all over the country seems to me to be part of this movement. Um, and then, of course, what's happening in schools, uh, where uh, schools turn out to be the place where individuals can make an enormous difference if they're lucky and if they can get another, enough other people involved. And so we're seeing a trend towards getting rid of the soda machines and moving into something. This is a picture from Yale's uh, Alice Waters period, um, where they're growing vegetables and serving terrific food in dormitories. What a concept. Um, I went to a conference last year at Kenyon College, where I know there are people here who were at that conference, and the Kenyon dining room features locally grown food. They're in the middle of Ohio, and it's hard to imagine how they can do that, but they're doing that. Um, and so this trend, it seems to me, is getting their... Um, uh, really uh, in a very important way, and I know that there's going to be a lot of talk about this later. Uh, in New York City, um, a private school, the, Cal the Calhoun School, I think has a model program on how to feed children. Um, it has an extremely charismatic chef, Chef Bobo, who um, thinks that kids should learn how to taste real food, serves nothing but real food, and has kids who are demanding cooking lessons, are complaining to their parents that the food in school is better than what they get at home, um, and are demanding and are asking questions about the kinds of ethnic diets that their classmates eat, and are asking if they can work in the kitchen. That's the most extraordinary place I've ever seen. It's just amazing. Okay, it's a private school. You have to start somewhere. But even in New York City, City, which has 1,200 schools and formidable logistic problems and um, you know, some of the most difficult and poor students you could ever imagine anywhere, has hired a chef to try to do something about uh, the New York City school meals, and he is going around school by school, one by one, um, and trying to make changes. And I was taken to a couple of schools in one of the poorest areas of Brooklyn, and I saw teenage boys eating salads with my very own eyes. It was... <laughs> A deeply moving experience. 
Um, so there are two approaches that I think people can take in this. Uh, the, I, I think, by all means, exercise personal responsibility. And here's how I suggest people do it in supermarkets. Shop the perimeter, never set foot in the center aisles. If you do, um, if you're forced to, never buy anything with more than five ingredients, with the ingredients you can't pronounce. Um, if I never buy anything with artificial anything in it. I don't buy anything with health claims because I think they're misleading. Um, and, it, and you don't want to buy things with cartoons on the package because you want to discourage manufacturers from marketing directly to your kids. And if you don't want kids eating junk food, you just don't have it in the house. Um, the alternative, um, taking personal responsibility a step further, is to do the vote with your fork kind of thing. And here you have to get involved in politics. Yes, you have to educate. People need to know more. But education is never sufficient for uh, behavior change. If you really want to affect, uh, affect behavior change, you have to change policy. And that means getting involved in politics. Um, and so you want to look for ways in which the political system can help you support making ethical choices, can help discourage making unethical choices, and can overall help to improve the food environment. And I I thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, share this with you this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Wonderful. It's now my great pleasure to introduce Gary Nabhan. He's director of the Center for Sustainable Environments at Northern Arizona University. He received a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship back in 1990 and is the author of Coming Home to Eat. As a multilingual conservation and ethnobiologist, who is often in the field, and in his case, that's often a desert. He is a consummate boundary crosser and bridge builder. His work with native communities for more than a quarter of a century serves to simultaneously preserve and promote traditional knowledge, improve health by reviving indigenous food cultures, and restore local agricultural landscapes. He's a prolific and lyrical writer, Another of his recent books, Why Some Like It Hot, tells a great and learned story of the co-evolution of communities and their native foods. A major initiative he recently founded and leads is RAFT, Renewing America's Food Traditions. In a personal statement on his website, he writes, I try to gain more than half of all my foods from all more than half of all my foods from local sources, raising heirloom vegetables, field crops, and fruit, raising Navajo churro sheep, black Spanish turkeys, and res dogs, and gathering wild plant foods. It's a pleasure to welcome Gary. I'm grateful to uh, be with you this morning and uh, grateful to the organizers of this uh, wonderful exchange. It 
is bringing so many different strands uh, together that uh, will hopefully benefit our food system and our health. At this moment in time, about 40% of all solar energy that's captured in uh, terrestrial vegetation on this earth is shunted into feeding just one species, our species. And if that did not pose enough of a bioethical dilemma that nearly half of the uh, world's uh, photosynthetic activity is now uh, being used to uh, uh, gorge our species at the expense of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of other uh, animals as well as plants on this uh, planet. we have uh, aggravated that situation by um, not only using solar energy to grow and transport that food, but um, also um, are sequestering more and more of the world's fossil fuel reserves to uh, grow that food and move it around. One in every 25 calories used in the United States from fossil fuel is now used to ship our food or uh, to prepare it for shipping in terms of uh, providing adequate cooling or packaging to transport food long distances. One in every 25 calories of fossil fuel um, in this country. So um, our current food system is dependent on uh, the kind of... um, Uh, dirty work that our government is doing in the Persian Gulf and in uh, the Arctic Wildlife Refuge and and other places until um, we decide that uh, we don't need to transport food like that and we don't need to to grow it the way we're currently growing it. And my talk, to some extent, is about that. And um, I'm going to uh, start off with some uh, elements of um, of the energetics of our food system, but I want to say right off that I'm not suggesting uh, energetics as a uh, a substitute for looking at all the ethical issues. I think it's a quick indicator of uh, how much impact our food system is having on uh, the planet and on environmental health and and Uh, human health, but I really think what we need to move toward is sort of a multivalent ethics of food choices that takes into account um, these factors that I've listed here as well as uh, uh, several other ones that the other speakers have brought up, that uh, this is a complex uh, uh, field with many ethical considerations that need to be integrated rather than treated in isolation. And just really want to say that um, from the start. Um, As I uh, said in my uh, uh, first comment, our uh, current food system is more coal and and petrol than soul or the soul of the farmer anymore. Uh, On the average, 10 calories of uh, fossil fuel are used to produce, process, transport, and prepare each calorie of food consumed in the United States. 
And uh, we use more kilocalories in food production, processing, and distribution for the United States than all of the fossil fuel uh, use in Asia and Africa combined for all purposes. So to some extent, uh, this is another story of, of uh, the uh, wealth of um, the world uh, being shunted into uh, one society at the expense of others, just like we're uh, shunting uh, the planet's uh, biodiversity into one species at the expense of all others. And the part I'd like to focus on is, uh, of this dilemma that I'd like to focus on is the fact that our food system is being taken for a ride that it need not necessarily go on. That 16 to 24 percent, depending on the estimates and when, how they were made and, and at what point in time uh, they were made, uh, 16 to 24 percent of all the energy consumed in the United States is tied up in the food system and uh, about a, a fourth or fifth of that is tied up in this uh, transportation system. So we have some food production systems that kind of run like an uh, energy deficit to begin with, producing uh, one calorie of strawberries, for example, industrially, um, using three calories to produce it. Um, and uh, if that weren't bad enough, now we ship so-called organic strawberries from Chile in the middle of the winter, uh, 6,000 miles, as if uh, something traveling that far uh, that's produced in an energy uh, deficit should be bought simply because it has that organic label on it. Uh, seems like, uh, to me, a, a wonderful uh, new absurdity um, in our food system to think that uh, labeling something organic uh, from 6,000 miles away that uh, is at, at a huge uh, energetic and ecological cost is still worth buying. Um, this is a picture of a, a friend of mine, 89-year-old uh, uh, Victor Messias for Jr. Um, his uh, sons and daughters were my teachers of Native American languages. And uh, he's one of the um, few farmers I know in the United States that still uh, produces for, uh, uh, corn on a solar energy, rainwater uh, basis without any fossil fuels um, or um, fossil groundwater, as a matter of fact. And um, he, was, he, he admitted to us a few years ago that he was getting tired and that he was going to retire from ranching and get rid of his sheep uh, so that he could devote full-time to farming. Uh, this is a, uh, a guy in his late 80s that is still out there in the fields every day. But his kind of farming is so different than um, uh, most corn grown in the United States uh, uh, because it is not soaked in oil, as, as Michael uh, Pollan's omnivore's uh, dilemma shows. Uh, the kind of corn that we're getting from the uh, um, Midwest is now uh, a very different beast than what we're talking about here. And... Um, the fact that driving a can of corn home from the grocery store and preparing it uses more calories than are now used in growing it is um, just one more step in that absurdity. So 
there are very estimates on uh, how far our food travels, and most of them we think are underestimates in that we can track these well from where they get into the U.S. food system and their, uh, in terms of their redistribution point, Los Angeles or New York City or Denver, Colorado or Chicago. But we really don't know how many miles that food has traveled before it hits that redistribution point where we can uh, track it. But it's an enormous amount of um, uh, fuel, and uh, we'll probably hear more about this um, in the afternoon. But if we look at uh, locally accessed ingredients in one meal and um, uh, those imported ingredients in another meal, there's 650 times the amount of uh, carbon emissions um, generated by that imported meal than, than in the local meal. And, and um, this means that, that that single factor alone of uh, transporting food, particularly when it doesn't need to be transported for some reasons I'll get into later, um, is, um, is uh, one of the easiest things I think we can solve um, in this absurd food system that we're um, participating in consciously or unconsciously these days. Um, at, the, at the bottom line for me is that Americans uh, crave the exotic in something that's, that borders on the bizarre, that now we have so-called health food drinks that have herbs from five continents in a single bottle. Now, those herbs may make up 0.0004% of the total contents of that bottle, but we feel that we're getting the healthful herbs of five continents all uh, packaged for us in one thing. So, so most health food stores are just as globalized, if not more globalized, than the average Safeway or Albertsons or, or, um, or Kroger's. And I think it's in part because of this craving that it's the exotic that is going to make us healthy. So for the first time in history, we import more food from foreign lands than we eat from our own soil. And um, there's a tragedy in there in that every other country envies the combination of great soil, available water, and uh, uh, fairly moderate climate that the United States has. Uh, Angelo Pellegrini, one of the great food writers of the last century, uh, who came from a, a, a very uh, a poor family in Italy, said most immigrants, when they come to the United States, just simply can't imagine how any single place on earth can have the abundance of uh, uh, resources to grow food as easily as we can in this country, and yet we're, we're exporting more food now than we uh, grow of our own, or importing more food now than we grow of our own. And the volume of vegetables imported to the U.S. from distant lands has, has more than tripled since 1970, and, um, and that's the least uh, of it. Uh, beverages, grains, etc., are are moved around much more than fresh vegetables. So um, what that means is that we have a, a distance with our food unlike 
uh, anything that humankind has experienced over our two and a half million years of um, evolution. When, when literally kids answer the question about where our food comes from by saying the grocery store, uh, we realize that, that um, where food does come from is simply in an abstraction. That um, uh, being an abstraction means that we don't really have to um, invest any care or concern about the health or the survival of food-producing land in the United States because um, we're basically buying into the outsourcing mentality uh, that, that uh, America's food supply can be outsourced if uh, labor is cheaper in other continents and uh, whatever the workers' conditions there are on those other continents is sort of out of sight, out of mind, so why worry about it? And that comes at expense of both the, the quality of our food and the land that once fed us that uh, we may need to feed us in the future again. And so these are just a series of slides, um, the next four that I'm going to go through very rapidly twice to just show you how rapidly the loss of some of the best farmland in the United States is occurring. Uh, these are four snapshots of land use in the metro Phoenix area, um, about 200 miles south of where I live. I'm, I raise sheep and turkeys up by the Grand Canyon. And um, watch the shrinking of the green and the growing of the yellow. I'll run through this twice. 1934, 1955, 1975, 1995. Let's do that again. Um, 34, 55, 75, 95. And the decisions about how to use that land and uh, the water that uh, formerly irrigated that land is not being decided by consumers, by farmers, or even by elected officials. That's the interesting thing. The Salt River Project and Central Arizona Projects that are sort of quasi-governmental corporations um, have um, decided that um, the water in that valley should go to the highest bidders, which are uh, the highest uses, I always love that term, which are fountains in front of resort hotels and things like that. And um, they've determined that everything within the Metro Phoenix Beltway, uh, all the agriculture uh, in that area should be phased out by 2015. That, um, so it's not voters, consumers, farmers, or elected officials deciding that. It's a quasi-governmental corporation. And the, the irony is that in the very same state, seven, or, uh, excuse me, I think it's 90%, or no, 70% of uh, Arizona consumers claim that they'll pay more for locally uh, produced foods if they can access more of it. 90% uh, say that they would prefer to buy a locally produced uh, food over the same commodity uh, imported from another state or another country. And again, um, local food is not about one issue, and uh, uh, there's many reasons why people uh, uh, prefer it, as you can see in this survey uh, that we did in Arizona. But let me talk uh, for a second about some cautions that people have, um, including some that, that Peter has in his uh, book with Jim about uh, local foods, that 
We still may have um, hydroponic tomatoes in the local marketplace. We still may have um, um, animals that are uh, not treated humanely, or we may have um, uh, foods with a high amount of uh, pesticides um, uh, embedded in them. Um, I see those in most of the farmers' markets that I have gone to in this country, uh, which is one of the main means that uh, uh, locally uh, produced food is being accessed in its own community, as minor risks. I do not see the CEO of ConAgra out there on Saturday mornings trying to sell me a rubber chicken. I also do not see much veal. I, I occasionally see hydroponic tomatoes, but the fastest growing part of uh, uh, the tomato industry is um, um, uh, truck-farmed heirloom tomatoes with incredibly different um, qualities than the tomatoes that grow well under hydroponics. And so we have incredibly wide-ranging uh, uh, prices among the uh, tomatoes in our own farmers' markets because some are heirloom, some are organic and heirloom, but, but we're essentially getting the same differentiation of, the, of tomatoes as we saw 20 years ago with the beginnings of the microbreweries. People used to think a tomato was one thing. Now we know it's multiple things, and I think we're gaining something from that diversity. Um, the other thing I should say is that um, our uh, studies of the prices for local foods in farmers' markets uh, like this one shows that um, the prices of tomatoes and zucchinis and other things seasonally dip below those prices in chain grocery stores. They're nowhere near the prices that you pay for uh, uh, as organic foods and health food stores. So farmers' markets, uh, many of which uh, now uh, use um, uh, uh, or accept food stamps and, and uh, 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 other program um, uh, coverage for elderly and, and pregnant women, the WIC program and all of that, um, are not out of the price range of local consumers of uh, low income. Um, in fact, um, uh, because the farmers are, are getting more of the consumer dollar and there's not several intermediaries between them and the consumer, the prices are often quite low. So we see four or five main reasons that people opt for uh, purchasing local food. The traceability is uh, becoming an increasing issue, and, and I think that's one of the interesting wrinkles about the, the safe food issues that Mary Nestle talks about uh, in her book. Um, people are still anxious about the idea that an ear tag, an identification tag on every cow or, or uh, bull in this country is going to solve our food safety issues. They are looking for human contact. They want to go uh, back to uh, a rancher or a hog farmer and say, you SOB, I got sick over the meat you sold me. They don't care about the, the, uh, the tagging system. That is a false sense of it, uh, assurance to most people. After the mad cow disease, uh, we realized that it took, uh, I think, uh, 15 days for that contaminated meat to get out to six states and a couple uh, 
uh, U.S. territories in the Pacific, and it took 30 days to figure out how that meat got out there that quickly. Okay, and the same thing was true with the so-called natural selection spinach um, uh, uh, a couple months ago. The, the traceability that people want is having a human face and address and a connection to people to go with it. Um, I'm going to talk about the sticky money issue, uh, not just multiplier effects that your community benefits from, but um, all kinds of other ways that uh, uh, locally accessible food helps communities in a second. But um, let me just say that, that uh, people are skeptical of the number of intermediaries that food passes through and that uh, they sense that that obscures both the quality of the food and um, its safety these days. And so we're now finding counties doing posters like this. It, it, it sort of amazes me uh, uh, that, that now, uh, rather than um, uh, food safety and uh, food ethics being a, uh, a liberal Democrat issue, it's also uh, an issue that I hear the right-wing Republicans in, and, and libertarians in Arizona talk about. And uh, even though um, we sort of had a dismal uh, election in terms of uh, bond issues against uh, uh, immigrants, against protecting uh, uh, open space in Arizona, they did uh, vote against uh, uh, factory farmed hogs. And, and it seems to me that um, the food issues relating to food security are now bipartisan. Um, the main thing that my recent studies have been on is how much of direct marketing of locally produced food returns to farmers and to communities themselves. And over the last uh, seven years, we didn't have a farmer's market, we didn't have a CSA, we didn't have a local food restaurant. 0.05% oh, uh, of the food produced in our county was eaten locally. Now we've radically changed that and there's been about a 20-fold increase in the amount of uh, locally produced food purchased in our community and a whole set of new restaurants, new mechanisms to get that food out to people. And what we're finding out is that, that ranchers and farmers who felt that they were up against a wall with environmental regulations, who for the last 20 years have blamed environmentalists for their uh, lack of profit margin and the environmentalists have blamed them for bringing more of their land under the plow, having less hedgerows, uh, woodlots, shelter belts. Now those farmers are saying that if they're getting 65% of every consumer dollar of their food rather than 8 or 10%, they have money to reinvest in the land. That the intermediaries, not the environmentalists, are what put them up against the wall. Again, uh, we're, we're doing some very simple kinds of documentation to remind our city fathers and county commissioners why they need to invest in farmers markets and, and local processing plants, that it's less pollution, less uh, fossil fuel use, um, uh, more um, uh, gain to the local community and multiplier effects, uh, certainly less um, uh, Fossil fuel use, it's going down at our farmer's market as there's an incentive for more uh, home gardeners to scale up and do truck gardening 
in our community or to do processing of their um, vegetables and fruits into salsas and chutneys and things like that. And so this is actually improving year by year in our community. And um, an interesting thing is that we have doubled in the last six years the number of species and varieties of food in our local economy, uh, uh, fresh foods, sourcing it, uh, I mean, uh, comparing what's in grocery stores, health food stores, farmers markets, CSAs, and we have the first community-supported wild foraging project in the country that's like a CSA. And so where I disagree with Marion is that there is a kind of variety that's good out there, and that's the, the real authentic diversity of, of uh, different vegetables and fruits that are available to people that I think is, is uh, a much more important factor than just talking about the relative ratios of mac macronutrients, uh, fat, uh, uh, protein, and sugar that are in our diet. Those micronutrients and secondary compounds are a neglected part of our health that these, this dietary diversity brings back to us. I also think that there's a big effort now to deepen what we mean by local, to see mescaline greens all produced from the Sabin Seed Company uh, in Southern California, then almost franchised and sold in farmers markets across the country, to me is not local. I mean, yes, they were locally grown and you can get them in your community, but I want to know where the inputs are. Uh, uh, from that production comes from? Is it using local manure and local compost on the soil? Is it using local water? Is it using local seeds? Is it linked to the regional heritage, uh, food heritage of the region? Is it reinforcing our cultural identity? And so I'd like to um, leave you with not ethics or energetics, but with poetics. And I think what we need to do is remember that these local foods inspire us, link us to place, and link us to community more than those uh, packaged foods could ever dream of doing. Sit down at the table with your countrymen and friends and ask your lips, tongues, minds, and bellies some questions. Questions that remind us that our bodies and spirits are either nurtured by place or swallowed up by tasteless placelessness. Ask aloud, just what exactly is it that we want to have cross our lips, to roll off our tongues and down our throats, to be transformed and conjured into something altogether new by thousands of gut microbes, and to be lodged in the very cells of our own bodies? Just what do we want to be made of? What do we claim as our tastes? And what do we want to taste like when we, in our own turn, are eaten by vulture, raven, coyote, condor, detritivore, or bear. I, for one, and perhaps you as well, wish to taste like the very country in which I reside, like Great Plains bison wallowing amidst prairie turnips, like salmon running up a cold and clear mountain stream, like gators crawling into a swamp stewing like gumbo with sassafras leaves, like wild rice hand-harvested from the azure waters of a northern lake, like maple syrup flowing from some woods that Robert Frost once knew, like cactus falling off a tall saguaro 
and being caught in a handmade basket below. These plants and these animals are asking us to pledge allegiance to what is local, to what is loved, to what is seasonal, and what is unique to each American place. If old Walt Whitman were sitting at our table supping with us today, he'd be celebrating that wild old Slumgullion stew that all of us together make, singing a song that goes like this. Taste America's uniqueness. Taste this earth. Taste our terroir. Savor its worth. And by tasting it, you will see. Thank you very much. And thank you very much. I would ask both of the presenters to come up to the stage and we'll take questions. I think there is a question over here. Thanks. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, thank you very much for uh, two very nice presentations. So I just, I just wanted to challenge something Professor Nessel said early in her talk, which was that the ubiquity of food is a problem. And I, I kind of want to tie this into uh, uh, Gary Nabon's presentation as well, because I was recently in Italy, and they have food everywhere. I mean, this ubiquitous food there. And I think they do very well because they don't have an obesity problem, things like that, at least as far as I could see because they do well on the other points that you raised, like they have low sugar, high vegetable content, and they have uh, tremendous local and regional pride in their food. I think that the pride in their local food sort of is the source of their cultural healthiness. So just wanted to see what you thought about that, and if you really still think that ubiquity of food is a problem. Oh, I tend to exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, if it's ubiquitous great food and it's eaten in reasonable calories, then it's going to be fine. Um, but that's not what, you know, that wasn't the point I was making. Yeah. Okay. In the way back. Thank you. Um, I wonder if, Marion, you could uh, elaborate on because I think it'll come up later when we have a representative uh, from McDonald's. Why exactly is it unethical to advertise to, let's just say, children under 12? And could you comment on the recent voluntary guidelines that were reported on two days ago in the New York Times, where a number of big food processing corporations, including McDonald's, have said they will do something different to half of children under 12. Mm -hmm. And for Gary, you mentioned the problems in uh, land utilization linked to highest use. Is that definition akin to what I'm more familiar with, which is so-called highest and best use? And are people exploring the possibility of defining best use in ways 
that would better serve the goals that are, I think, implicit in your presentation. Um, marketing to children, the, uh, there's a fair amount of research that has looked at children's understanding of commercial as opposed to educational messages. Um, and there's some argument about where the cut point is, but children under the age of whatever the cut point is are not able to distinguish advertising from education or the purpose of advertising. Um, and so they're not really in a position to make informed choices about what its significance is. And there's some evidence that that difficulty extends through high school, um, but the cut point is usually <laughs> eight or nine or 10 or someplace in there that's used. Um, so that means if you're trying to sell something to a two-year-old, uh, that two-year-old is not in a position to evaluate it. It's nothing more complicated than that. Um, Oh yeah, the new CARO guidelines. Um, they, I was traveling in Europe this week and they were sent to me by a reporter. Um, and I just read them and said, well, they're voluntary and voluntary has never worked in this industry. Um, and there are lots and lots and lots of loopholes. I read it as a admission by the companies that they know they're doing wrong and are trying to fix that in whatever way that they can do. And um, usually when I give these kinds of talks, I talk a lot about the difficulties that companies have in maintaining their bottom line in today's food economy, and I'll just do this very, very quickly. There are 3,900 calories a day for every man, woman, and child um, in the country available in the food supply that's roughly twice what anybody needs. And companies are required by our shareholder value system to grow every quarter. So if you're a food company, you're in an impossible position. You not only have to make profit every year, but those you have to increase your profits every quarter because your company's health depends on Wall Street's analysis of your ability to meet your growth targets. And you're trying to do that in a situation in which is already too much food. So I see what's going on in the food industry in general with respect to kids as desperation to keep vending machines in schools. Um, they will do anything to keep the vending machines in schools um, because if you have vending machines, people are going to buy from them. Um, and anything to keep regulators away, critics away, um, and anybody who might in some way curb the ability to market to children. It's a vitally important part of corporate health. Um, so that's, you know, that's what, the, so I see that as being part of that situation. With regard to the highest and best uh, use um, question, um, I, I think um, that's ultimately what I'm talking about, redefining uh, terms like that um, and looking at how we use all water and fossil fuels in this country and in this world in a new light. Um, when we ask um, Arizonans in, in, you know, Harris Poll type surveys of uh, uh, randomized uh, uh, residents in every zip code in our state, uh, if they would be willing to put aside a certain part of the state's water budget to ensure food security, 75% of the people in the state are in favor of doing that immediately, but the, the current way our water decisions are made is 
is um, first all the water is subsidized. No one's paying for the the, the real cost of the water, but it's um, the highest and best use is always urban and recreational. So uh, uh, every uh, legal decision in Arizona over the last 50 years has limited water to agriculture, even though water, uh, agriculture's gotten about uh, twice as efficient in its water use since uh, the 1950s, and shunted the water removed from agriculture into urban growth, which ultimately feeds itself. We have 20,000 more people moving into the uh, Phoenix area every year that negate any water savings by the people that already live there. So my point is that we have to completely redefine highest and best use, not only for water, fossil fuel, but for other things as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, was there a question, a couple of rows in front? Yeah. Yes, thank you. I uh, have a question for Marion. Marion, my question is in regards to the food guide pyramid, and I'm concerned about the health of it. How do you recommend changing that? I am an educator, and I, I completely disagree with it. Um, the question was about the food guide pyramid. Um, don't use it, for one thing. That would be the, the first place. Use the old one. Um, the old one was um, hierarchical and showed that it was better to eat fruits, vegetables, and grains than um, foods from higher up on the pyramid. And yeah, it had problems, but at least it had food on it. The new one doesn't have, even have any food on it. Um, and... <laughs> The, uh, it was a completely politicized process, and it's, a, it's the Department of Agriculture's food guide. You have to have a computer to use it. You need to go on and log on, and if you've never done it, it's a very interesting experience. Um, well, every five years, the dietary guidelines get revised, and there'll be another um, opportunity to go at it again in 2010. But I'd use the old one. I should say that with the Wild Farm Alliance, a, a great organization that's uh, based in California, we did a, a wild farm food pyramid that just reminds people all the um, uh, species and, and lives that are embedded in our food system from uh, farm workers to pollinators to soil microbes uh, to think about that, that whole idea of where our food comes from in a more ecological way. We want to see right. that. Other questions? Take some questions over here and then maybe we'll try to go to the balcony. Okay. Is there somebody with a mic in the balcony? There's somebody right here. Okay. Now, now that we see that organic foods have been co-opted by the government and by large corporations buying out all of these firms, the question is, do we see a new march toward local organic as a movement? And how, if so, how do we prevent that, too, from being co-opted? And how do we empower it, hopefully? Um, I... Um uh, I think that the food movement that is a social movement is beyond being co-opted in the long run. The percentage of the 
of uh, the food chains that Walmart is going to leverage with its organic food is still relatively small compared to what everything else is going on positively. But the rest of that movement is going back to diffuse, uh, uh, a diffuse set of uh, producers and, and distributors. Uh, so we don't see its growth rate relative to Walmart because it's not going back to just one corporate headquarters. I think the, the beyond organic or organic and beyond movement is the way to go, to say let's keep organic as a, as a cornerstone of what we think of as healthy food, but add elements to it. Uh, 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 fair workers' wages, um, uh, reduced uh, uh, distribution chains, value chains, whatever you want to call it, so that there's less of a distance between producer and consumer, and um, that we need to stay vigilant about the about uh, uh, diluted down uh, definitions of these things, but we have to keep on pushing the standards higher, and I think um, uh, spending much time on, on worrying about who's co-opting us is is not where our energy should lie, but, but in, in advancing a more cohesive view, integrated view of what healthy food is. Can I comment on that too? I agree completely. When I was writing What to Eat, that was one of the big questions that came up was, could you trust organics? And to my great surprise, the answer turned out to be yes, with some limitations on it. But the everybody that I talked to who was involved in growing organic food, producing organic food, inspecting organic food, regulating organic food, said that everybody who was growing organic food, or pretty much everybody, was really trying to do it right. Right. Um, and the pressures that are, I worry a lot about the pressures on it from the large corporations, but I'm also worried about the pressures on it that are trying to make it better. I don't think you drag it down and destroy it in order to make it better. You do exactly what Gary suggested, which is you try to push it in the direction of uh, closing the loopholes and making it a stronger system. Yeah, and I think we've all said so far, Organic alone is not a panacea. Local alone is not a panacea. Uh, there will be people that manipulate these terms, but there's a lot of good effort in linking these things rather than dealing with them as isolated values. Yeah. Questions? Okay, here. You, you. The fellow right Thank you. To both of you, um, have you ever considered advocating certification for people who are growing food so they know how to prepare the soil and maintain the soil? People who create food for marketing, for product uh, um, uh, retail, and for people who run restaurants so that we can be assured that the same way that we know that an accountant is certified with a CPA, that people who are in the food chain are actually certified? What do you think about that? Um, I, what, what I've seen is that um, there's a lot of growers who use organic methods and who, who know how to do soil preparation that aren't certified organic now. And then in our polls in Arizona, people want the traceability, the human face, the local, and to know that it's environmentally friendly by seeing with their own eyes 
that it's environmentally friendly because they can go to the farms and ranches nearby, and they don't give a shit about whether it's certified organic or not. I'm not a big advocate of turning over to the government certification of every part of our lives. I agree. Yeah. Hi. Um, I've recently finished both uh, the Coming Home to Eat and The Way We Eat by Peter Singer. And I think, although I learned an incredible amount from both of the books, I think the, the concerns that Peter Singer raised in his book about specifically local food are slightly more in-depth than the ones you addressed in your talk. I think he brought up the point that individual travel miles to farmers markets where you have to go to a bunch of different places to get your food can actually add up to more fossil fuel use than importing foods from far away and also why it is inherently more ethical to support your local community than other communities in the world that might possibly be more advantaged by your spending dollar even if they're getting a smaller percentage of it and I just wanted you to address those topics. Yeah, I, I agree with all the, the cautions that Peter brought up, um, that local is not a panacea, and um, yet I think local is a, a large uh, component of what we need to do. What, what the Native American communities in our area are saying is not that they want to go all local, but they want fair trade with other native producers so that's, that dried salmon comes into our area from northwestern fishermen and wild rice from Winona Leduc's project in exchange for their beans and legumes that are, and chilies that grow well in the southwest. So they're thinking about fair trade as a community to community thing, whether it's international or uh, cross regions. And so um, I've never been an all um, uh, uh, local guy. I just think we need to push the balance back toward that and that fair trade is the other thing. We can also say some things like it's pretty damn absurd that coffee is the most um, uh, uh, traveled product uh, and traded product in the world. Do we really... Uh, all need to get a buzz of coffee from Starbucks in the morning. So fair trade coffee isn't that of much of interest to me. I think it's just one more diversion from thinking about what we really need. Do we, is the thing that we need every morning is just a buzz from another country, uh, whether it's fair trade or not, or can we get on without that? Thank you. Let's have a... I hear some people saying they need that buzz. Okay. <laughs> Oh. Hi. Um, so, over the of course of the talk yesterday and the talks today, I've I've heard some issues, the things that are wrong with the, the food system, such as health implications of the uh, of it and marketing, stocking of grocery stores, fossil fuel expenditures, loss of ag land, and um, the monopoly-like control of food as commodity. Um, and largely, the solutions we've been given have been those of personal choice. Um, and I'm from Houston, Texas, and the, the personal choice often is like farmers markets uh, and CSAs simply don't exist. And if they do, it's certainly not enough to nourish five million people. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Houston was recently crowned as the most obese city in the nation. Um, so I would like to hear possibly um, systemic solutions that you, you might have in mind, um, in, in, specifically for 
places that don't necessarily have that local option. Or, or how to create that option more substantially. Yeah, I think you create options. Um, I think it's perfectly possible to go to any supermarket in the United States and eat a healthful diet from it. Um, there are um, frozen foods that are have one ingredient on the package and that seem to me to be very underrated as a source of fruits and vegetables. Um, there are you know, other choices that can be made on the personal responsibility side that um, make it, I think, perfectly possible to eat well from um, existing supermarkets. But that isn't really what this is about. This is about trying to create the same kinds of opportunities for everybody in the country that people in cities have. Uh, I mean, you could move to Austin. That would be one possibility. Um, the, uh, Just don't commute. <laughs> the... Um, but I think these things have political solutions and there are opportunities for organizing. I would start for, with the schools. I bet there's plenty to do in the local schools and that would be a really great place to start. Um, go in and take a look at what the kids are eating and see if you can make it better. I, I'm going to uh, do a sideways take on your question and bring back something that Marion and Peter said and said it so quickly that I, I don't know if it sunk in with everyone, but eating less is something that we can do in every place. And this uh, American society, by and large, and I'm, uh, I don't want to subsume everyone as saying all Americans have the same value, but it is the society that fasts less in the history of the world than, than any other culture. When, when I talked to the people from Crete in the villages where the Mediterranean diet began, they said, you know what, if you Americans eat the Mediterranean diet and you have it every day, you're still not going to get the health, uh, same health status that we, are, we have because we fast partially or wholly 180 to 210 days a year. American society is so secular that the spiritual fasting traditions that are nearly every other culture and faith uh, around the world are ignored here, even though we have devout uh, Jewish, Islamic, Christian people. Uh, how did we get so secular that we've thrown fasting out and eating less as an ethical response to the world and a spiritual response to the world out of our entire system? And so I hope we come back to the whole notion of eating less. Thank you. Hi, I just wanted to say thank you um, for <laughs> all the work that you guys are doing in this conference. It's fabulous. And I'm at an organization in Boston called The Food Project, and we're also working on these issues. And um, one thing that we're really thinking about right now is the Farm Bill. And I'm surprised that no one has mentioned that yet, um, because that's one way to affect huge systemic change. And so I wanted to ask you both, um, what are your priorities if you are working on the Farm Bill and issues within it? Um, and how, I'm, I'm assuming those will affect your work, so. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad you raised that. Uh, the Farm Bill comes up for uh, renewal in 2007, and there are groups all over the country who are working on trying to bring health issues into agriculture issues. The Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy in uh, Minneapolis has published a really terrific report on how farm policy affects obesity. That's a very nice starting place. Um, and there are lots of people looking at whether the Farm Bill can do something to promote local agriculture, to promote organics, um, and to promote healthier products and change the subsidy system in some way so that there isn't so much emphasis on animal feed and corn and soybeans that become the basis of uh, so many processed food products. Yeah, I'm on the Community Food Security Coalition board. They're one of the many groups spending time with it. And again, I think what we need is a real overhaul um, to make that department the Secretary of uh, Food, Land, and Agriculture, something again to relink the goals of agriculture back to healthy land and healthy people. And, and so a lot of the folks I know are working on making sure that the, the uh, programs that, uh, that are dealing with uh, subsidies are subsidizing the right kind of agriculture and ma land management rather than the, the worst of it where we're giving soybean farmers, uh, you know, three hundred dollars to $600,000 of, of farm subsidies uh, for growing GMO soybeans or for not growing it some years rather than taking care of their land in a more comprehensive way. So I think we need to work both on the land, uh, the productive land conservation issues and the health issues and reaffirm those as the primary goals of the USDA. Can I ask the speakers how hopeful are you that there will be substantial change in the upcoming farm bill? <laughs> still have government, don't we? Um, I think it's worth working on. Um, and, you know, you don't, change sometimes comes slowly, but it's not going to happen if people aren't working on it. And I think this is a great opportunity for grassroots political action about something that really matters. And if it doesn't work this time, maybe it'll work next time. Um, but there it is. And if nobody does anything about it, it's going to be business as usual. Let's see. Okay. Right here. And then there. Yes. Uh, very good presentation. I appreciate this whole dimension and that you're bringing into it. One thing occurs to me, though, there probably are some regionally important things like where there's more water and there isn't. And you bringing up the dimension of water seemed very important. We're still draining down that huge aquifer that I can't pronounce the name of in the middle of the country. Ogallala? So hmm? Ogallala, right. We're, we're so used to having a lot of water here. We're in the part of the country where it just rains and rains and rains. And half the country, that's not true. And, and to some extent, it seems to me if we're going to move, move towards pasturage with animals and, and away from the, coin and, the corn and soy, uh, those areas are going to tend to be more pasture. Uh, you know, and, and the places with a lot of water <laughs> are going to be the more, more water-intensive things, and I want to eat both. Um, yeah. I think you're right on target that we need to see the, you know, um, 
some bioregionalism really take hold and have some regional food systems that, as, as Henry David Thoreau said, meet the expectations of the land right there in the region. And so uh, that we might have different uh, ratios of production of livestock versus vegetable crops in each of these regions wouldn't surprise me. And, and rather than trying to have that McDonald-oriented one taste, one kind of farm sort of thing. So thanks for bringing that point up. Maybe this will... Okay. Thank you very much. Um, it was very nice that you could come and have these talks here. Being a professor of nutrition and food science, I have a question on the organic foods that you discussed. Um, I understand that the organic foods are uh, healthier because we are using less or none um, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and so forth. But I don't understand whether anybody can tell us about the nutritional value of organic food versus conventional food and the price that we have to also pay for organic food versus conventional. And the reason for the price I'm bringing in the, that the turnover of some of this organic food is less and as a matter of fact, the nutritional quality may decline because it's not bought as frequently. So if any uh, suggestion, recommendation, comments would be appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there are many critics of organics and they have a long list of issues that they raise about uh, what's wrong with organics with the price driving everybody, I think, to try to look at it very critically because organics cost more, I think, because they cost more to produce. Um, the organic research organizations and the organic trade associations would love beyond belief to be able to prove that organics are healthier and more nutritious than um, non-organic foods. Uh, I think this is very difficult science to do. Uh, these are hard studies to do. There have been a few studies. All of the studies point in the same direction, which is that foods that are grown on healthier soils and richer soils have more nutrients. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, are the differences large? No. Are the differences significant? Probably not. Are Americans suffer suffering from nutritional deficiencies on average? No. Um, so it's very, very difficult to, to do this, even if they did turn out to have more nutrients in them, which they seem to be. Um, would it make any difference to health? That's also very difficult science to prove. It's intuitively obvious that healthier foods are better for you, but it, the science just isn't there. Can we take, let's see, we'll have one, two, three and quick comments, and that'll be it. Okay, the question in the back there and then these two. And maybe ask all three questions and you can respond, the panelists can respond with final comments. Uh, yes, I have a question about um, advertising to children. And um, the, the two-year-old doesn't hop in the car, have a wallet full of money and buy the food. Where is our responsibility as parents? You know, do we not know how to say no? Where's our thinking? Why do we let the corporations do our thinking for us? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's the, 
you know, I talk to parents. My kids are grown, and I don't have small children anymore. And I, my children were raised in an era that was much quieter. They weren't marketed to, to nearly the same extent that they are today. People who have children, people that I know who have children in two litters, um, you know, they have very young children, and then there was a second marriage years later, and then they have another set of children, say it's much, much harder now that the, adver the extent of the advertising is so much greater and so much, not only in volume, but in sophistication. Um, I've just done a study with some students on uh, how mo foods are marketed to children, and you just wouldn't believe what goes on on the Internet. If you have a child who's um, online, you just cannot believe the extent of food advertising that's there. So, yes, it, parents need to say no, but it's become increasingly difficult to do that. Uh, first, parents have to recognize how their kids are being marketed to. Then they have to be willing to, to teach their kids critical thinking about foods um, and critical thinking about advertising. And unless you're willing to dig in and do that, uh, it's just all too easy to just say, okay, sure, I'll buy it. It's only one food. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think the other thing there is that um, uh, even conscientious parents are, are dismayed that the kids are getting this advertisement in schools when, mm -hmm. when Pizza Hut and McDonald's can, can have franchises in your schools and their pop machines in your schools. Even a parent who's selective about the food choices in the six hours a day that the child is with them is up against the wall with these other influences. We're going to have to close this session now and maybe during the breaks people can speak to the presenters and thank you so much for a very interesting session.